There is that. Can you hear me? Good to go? Okay. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the word of the Lord? And a welcome and a hello to everyone who has been watching and listening throughout the world. We love you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, concluding chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this Lord's Day to come together as a family, as one to serve and to worship you and to hear you speak to us out of your word. Thank you for the ancient command which we wish to honor this morning of coming to your table, the table of the Son, the table of the Word made flesh, to celebrate and to commemorate and to worship you for what he has done on our behalf, what the divine Son did on our behalf by decree of the Father, and the work of the Son applied to the souls of lost humanity by the work of the Spirit. Prepare our minds and our hearts for receiving the truth of your word and for receiving the blessings of your table and obeying this ancient command. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are watching and listening, those from our country, those from South America, those from all over Asia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, Philippines, and other places which we may not be aware. For their sakes, Lord God, help me this morning to proclaim the truth of your word in spite of myself. May many minds and hearts be open to the truth of your word by the power of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us all to understand and grasp the truth of your word, to take heed to the warning which the Apostle gives us in the closing of this chapter, and to apply its truth in and over our life, to believe in you truly and genuinely. And we pray for the power of the Spirit of God to come upon us to enable us in the first place to have our spiritual eyes and ears opened, to see the truth, to perceive the truth, and to embrace the truth and submit to the truth, you who are truth. So may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our one and only rock and redeemer, you who are our one and only hope. These days make that more than apparent. But you who are more than hope enough for one and for all, then, now, and always. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So these verses, verses 23 to 25, offer us something of a conclusion, of course, to chapter 2. They offer us something... Well, 2,000 years ago, when this was first written, there's no such thing as chapters and paragraphs as we know them, and certainly not verses. Um, John, in verses 23 to 25, 
is giving us several things. One thing that he gives us is something of a conclusion to this cleansing of the temple event, the first great event according to the Jewish religious calendar of Jesus in Jerusalem. And also the closing of chapter 2 is something of a preparation for chapter 3. Verses 23 and 25 offer something, again, of an introduction to one of the most important conversations that's ever been held, that's ever been recorded. An introduction to the first half of chapter 3, which is, of course, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, one of the spiritual elite of his day. A man who, nevertheless, is in spiritual darkness, as are all members of lost humanity. This passage is a bit of a sobering one this morning. It's a bit of a frightening one, really. For it is a statement and a warning against inadequate faith. False faith. Fake faith. Spurious faith or belief. A belief or a faith that is shaky, that is surface only, and that is transient. Here today, gone tomorrow. Faith with is not genuine, or as we traditionally say sometimes in evangelical Christian circles, it's not true saving faith that John is speaking of, the faith of the fickle crowds. Now, there is some genuine faith, most certainly. But at this time, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, amongst the crowds there in the city of Jerusalem, not a great deal. Very sobering and frightening truth. First of all, uh, let me read this verse again. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. The reason for that, beholding his signs, which he was doing. So this first phrase, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, to give you something of a timeline of the, of the life of Jesus, to help you in a historical framework put this into perspective. By this statement, John is telling us that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem longer than many. He and his disciples, that is, those who were his disciples at this time, probably the full twelve, have not been gathered together yet, although it's a distinct possibility that during this Passover time at the opening of his ministry and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows, some of these other disciples that he will call are probably there in Jerusalem or in the vicinity. I think he also has his family with him. Probably, as we learned from uh, the end of chapter 1, in the early part of his ministry, his family's traveling about with him, at least there in Galilee. I think it's a distinct possibility that his mother and his half-brothers and sisters are with him at this time in Jerusalem as well. So they all stay behind a little longer than many, perhaps not most, but many. Uh, or I should say perhaps this way, Jesus, his family, his disciples, they're staying for what was considered to be the entire event, the entire feast, after the day or the meaningful night in which Passover itself is held and observed, there's another very important religious festival that follows immediately after that. Okay? Um, following immediately after Passover is the seven-day feast or festival of unleavened bread. Now, of course, all of this is taking place according to the Jewish calendar, first century A.D., in the month of Nisan, uh, which corresponds roughly to our month of March, mostly the month of April. So as I told you before, on the 10th of the month, a Passover lamb is chosen. On the 14th of the month is the Passover itself, in which the lamb is sacrificed. Then immediately the next day is held the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasts for seven days. It would begin on the 15th, it would conclude on the 21st day of the month. 
And these two observances were so obviously closely connected together by this time, in particular in the first century AD, that the term Passover in uh, ancient documents in, in, in Jewish circles, it was often basically Passover referred to the same event, the whole event. Passover itself and a feast of unleavened bread that followed afterwards. And this is exactly what you find here in John's text. Um, many people, not all, remained in Jerusalem to keep both feasts, to keep both observances. As I told you before, the Jewish people by this time, in the first century A.D., 27, 29 A.D., they're scattered all over the known world and beyond. They're, they're inhabiting all of the Mediterranean world. In fact, some of the largest Jewish populations at this time aren't even in Jerusalem. They're in other provinces of the Roman Empire. So tens of thousands of people have to travel in to celebrate the Passover. Now, there was extenuating circumstances in which you could dismiss yourself. Nevertheless, at least the Jewish men, 12 and up, were supposed to be there. And of course, if you're going to be truly devout and truly pious and honor the Word of God and God's commands, you're going to stay for the whole event, the whole Passover. But many of these people, at great danger and hardship and expense, they had to get back home to wherever they came from in the first place. So many of these folks was observed Passover, but they wouldn't stay for the whole Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus is going to. Jesus is going to. Jesus is leading the way in faithfulness, in devotion, and in true piety. He, his disciples whom he has called, and his family, they will stay throughout for both. This period would by far be the busiest for the Roman provinces in Palestine, particularly the province of Judea and the city of Jerusalem itself. Many people would have left, but there would have been tens of thousands who were still there. This city swelled its population numbers by several times or more during this time. And there is where Jesus is. He has just cleansed the temple. He has just purified it from the corruption that he found there. And he celebrates a very meaningful Passover, one of the most meaningful in history, because he to whom the Passover pointed to and to whom the Passover was all about is there in the flesh, in person. And so we, we do not know where he would have actually stayed during the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He probably had to camp out in the city or outside the city like thousands of people did. Basically, the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley outside the city walls was an enormous camp in which thousands of people would literally be camped out there during this time. Maybe he met the friend, uh, some of his best friends in this world in his first advent in his incarnation. Lazarus, a wealthy man, his two sisters Mary and Martha, they lived over in a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany just on the reverse slope from the Mount of Olives. Maybe he was invited to stay with them. Maybe he met them at this particular time. But it's very significant. He has cleaned that temple out. And the purpose of the temple has arrived. In fact, Jesus, if you recall from a week or so past, that temple is now obsolete. The real temple is here. The greatest temple of all is here. And He's there in the flesh, teaching and preaching, trying to open their eyes and open their ears as to the truth of Scripture, the truth of the Messiah, the truth of Messiah's mission. All of these things are taking place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as John tells us, during this seven-day feast, Jesus is probably performing the miraculous. He is probably demonstrating acts of supernatural power or authority. The time of the signs of the Messiah has arrived. John told us that at the wedding of Cana. It's time for Him to reveal Himself or step out onto the world stage or the public stage 
as we say. So there were many, many people here, large crowds nevertheless. And the text suggests that Jesus was very, very busy. Although John here, frustrating for some folks, he doesn't give us all the details. Isn't that interesting? He gives us a broad brush stroke of what Jesus is doing, but he doesn't give us a lot of details. There's probably a few reasons for that. One of the reasons is John has another focus. Never forget, John is telling us his encounter of the Christ, the Messiah, the Word made flesh from his perspective, but he's also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's receiving instruction from God the Spirit on what to include in his particular gospel. And one of the reasons why John's gospel is so different or so unique in some ways from the synoptics, the other three, is that remember John, we believe, is the last gospel to be written. John knows full well that the other three gospels have been disseminated throughout the Roman Empire. And he knows full well that many of the people who received this gospel into their hands first, they've read the other three. So he assumes you have that information. He's inspired by the Spirit to give you information that's not given specifically in the other three Gospels, hence much of the material in his. Many believed in his name, beholding his signs, and yes, that is one of John's most important theological words in this Gospel, semeon, the word that he uses for the signs which began at the wedding of Cana. A semeon, again, is an event. It's an actual occurrence. It's an actual incident. But it is something that points to something bigger and beyond itself. It points to the ultimate realities in God, in Christ, in the person of Christ, in the meaning of his mission and what he will accomplish. And John will tell us, of course, that many of these miraculous signs, these acts of healing or these acts of provision, as in the case of the wedding of Cana, they're all signs, they're all Simeon that should point out to you who exactly Jesus really is, his true identity, where he came from, what he's going to do in this world, where he's going to, what all this means what he's all about. And so obviously he's performing acts of the supernatural, as we would say. Miracles, right there. Probably in the temple complex itself and outside in the courts and the city streets surrounding the temple complex in Jerusalem at this time. But what signs? Again, what does John mean by this? What, what is he talking about? Well, we have the first of the signs, the wedding at Cana. We also have a sign that John doesn't mention specifically to draw your attention to it in detail, but it's a sign nevertheless. And that was the cleansing of the temple itself. Jesus himself spoke of a great sign, one of the greatest of the signs, or the greatest sign of all, made manifest to humanity in his first advent, and that is his future atoning death in his conquest physically, not only spiritually of hell and death, his resurrection. But what other signs? Well, apparently during this time, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he was very, very busy, such as you see him in the other three Gospels. He must have been performing signs or miracles, which point to his identity and mission. So as one can imagine from the other Gospels, he's probably performing miracles of healing. He's healing people. He's helping people. And if you look at these miracles of healing, even in the other Gospels, folks, it's they're actual events. They're, they're not parables. They're real incidences in real space-time history. But these miracles, that the event itself points to something even bigger concerning Jesus and what he has come to do for humanity at large. So these signs of healing and so forth, that's what John means. That's what's going on. 
In fact, I think the Feast of Unleavened Bread, according to the religious elite, is getting upstaged, as we say, by Jesus, by what he's doing there in the temple complex and out in the streets at that time. And isn't it wonderful? It's the most wonderful time in history because the one whom the Feast of Passover pointed to, the one of even whom the Feast of Unleavened Bread points to, he's there. He's arrived in the flesh as prophesied and doing exactly what the ancient prophets said he would do when he finally showed up. A word about Passover. Of course, it commemorates the nation of Israel becoming a nation and being freed from the evil empire of Egypt. But it also points to Jesus, that lamb that was slain and the blood of the lamb which covers the doorposts of the families and saved them from the judgment of God, coming upon an evil nation that night, which represents God's coming in judgment upon an evil world in the future. That lamb points to Jesus. Remember the baptizer's words? There he is, the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins from people who will come from all over the world. And those who are under the blood of that lamb at the judgment to come, the judgment of God will pass over them. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I have to make this size of a story this size for the sake of time this morning. What does that represent? You remember? They couldn't leaven their bread when they left Egypt, the night of judgment that they were to leave Egypt. They had to pack up unleavened bread to eat on the journey to meet God at the mountain in the wilderness. But it also points to something else. If you remember your symbolism or metaphors from the Bible, leaven is also a symbol of sin, of wickedness, of corruption. So when they are leaving Egypt and they're taking with them unleavened bread, that figuratively means you are to leave the corruption of the world and Egypt behind. I'm going to purify you as I take you into the wilderness to meet with me at my mountain, that you will know me personally by name and receive my moral law, which is not only for you, but for all of humanity. Right? Also, Bread is what else? It's a symbol of the Word of God. And it's a symbol of the life-giving power of the Word of God for humanity. And later on, Jesus will refer to Himself as what? The true bread who came down from heaven to give true life and spiritual life from humanity. So remember these things when you think of Passover and unleavened bread, and He who is the true bread who came down from heaven, who is now performing miracles in the temple complex in the streets of Jerusalem. Okay? Now, what's happening? Well, Jesus is preaching, He's teaching, He's healing, He's working very hard at His public ministry, He's doing much of what you read of Him doing in the other Gospels and in the remainder of John's Gospel. So because of the manner, because of the ways in which His power and which His authority is being displayed, is being made manifested during this week. And yes, because of that tumult of cleaning out a corrupted worship space, because of what he did at the temple, people are beginning to be drawn to them. He's beginning to achieve some notoriety, as we would say, or some fame. A lot of tension is being drawn his way or is coming his way. People are somewhat accepting him or thinking about it, or entertaining the notion. They're certainly drawn to him by the notoriety of the cleansing of the temple. They're certainly drawn to him as thrill-seekers, 
as sensationless seekers because of these sensationalist miracles, although genuine that they be, of healing in the streets and in the temple complex. They're probably beginning to laud him as a great teacher, to laud him and praise him as a great healer, to laud him and praise him as a great prophet or potential prophet. And perhaps even they're beginning to ask the question, is this the Messiah? Is this the promised anointed one himself arrived at last? Those who are suspicious of Jesus being the Messiah, of course, are the most accurate. And they will be proven to be exactly right. However, now again, I should mention, there are many people who probably did genuinely believe in Jesus and chose to follow him. Remember, those who follow Jesus do not just number those 12 men. Well, 11. And a fake and a fraud in the 12th. As terrifying as that is. Perhaps he meant Mary, Martha, Lazarus at this time. Perhaps other people came to genuine faith or belief in him that he is the promised Messiah and the anointed one. In other words, Jesus had a lot of followers outside of the twelve. Don't forget those folks. And many of those people may have had their spiritual eyes and ears open, as we say, at this time and began to follow him. However, there were many who did not. I find this passage really sobering and really frightening. That's why I did not want to speed through it just in order to get to that more famous and well-known conversation in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And oh, believe me, we'll camp out with Nicodemus and Jesus that night for quite a while when we get to chapter 3. But let's not barrel over, pardon the expression, the truth that's here in 23 and 25. Many of these people, many members of the crowds, teeming crowds in Jerusalem there at that time, John suggests, well, he tells us that their faith, their belief was not genuine. They're listening to Jesus preach. They're listening to Jesus teach. They're actually seeing this man perform acts of what we would call the supernatural, miracles. And yet their faith in him is not genuine. It is spurious. It is shallow. It is transient. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. That terrifies me. That really bothered me this week, and it still does. John is saying that's what sinful fallen humanity is. 2,000 years ago and today, it has not changed one single solitary bit. Or let me put this in the modern English vernacular. These people there in Jerusalem at this time, they're paying lip service to him, giving him some sort of praise. They're giving some sort of intellectual or emotional assent or acknowledgement that he's a good man, or what he's doing is great, or he may be a prophet, he may be the Messiah, some sort of intellectual nod or assent to the truth that he's preaching, which they probably do not understand, or some intellectual or emotional assent to these good deeds that he's performing. But they did not truly and totally commit to him in genuine faith, in genuine belief. Let me quote you William Hendrickson from his commentary. He writes, this is most certainly not the same as saying that they surrendered their hearts to him. This is not at all what we call saving faith, end quote. Exactly. Their faith is spurious. It's not genuine. It's shaky at best. As D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, he makes an interesting point here. To exercise faith on the grounds of having witnessed miracles alone can be a precarious thing. Although miracles cannot command faith, and that is true, it is better to believe on the grounds of miracles and perhaps not at all. Nevertheless, as we find here in John's text, to exercise faith on the grounds of miracles alone can be a precarious thing. 
end quote. He's absolutely right. Sometimes events of the miraculous and of the supernatural do not create genuine saving faith. Perhaps you've known someone that has actually experienced genuinely the power of God in their life or in the life of a family member. And as soon as the crisis is gone, the faith, the commitment, the devotion is gone. Just as here, 2,000 years ago, amongst these fickle crowds. It's a sobering warning. It's a sobering fact that John is confronting us with. Reminds me elsewhere of the very miracle of Jesus' resurrection and the twelve. Remember, Jesus Christ comes back bodily from death three days after being tortured to death on a Roman cross. And he warned his disciples, watch of this, I will be put to death, and three days later I will come back, tear down the real temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And when he did, of course he appeared bodily to most of them the day of the resurrection, but one was missing, remember? According to the Gospel of John, Thomas. And what did Thomas say when he came back? We have seen the Lord. I don't believe it. I'm not having it. People don't come back from the dead. Tortured people on Roman crosses don't come back from the dead. I'll have to see him myself and I'll have to put my hands in the very wounds by which they killed him in order to believe. And of course, a week later, Jesus shows up bodily, alive, in the flesh, from the dead, his real material, physical, flesh and blood, corporeal body, and says, I heard you, Thomas. Here I am. Have a touch. And, of course, Thomas believes, and one of the most amazing truth statements in the Bible is given by Thomas. He declares Jesus to be curios, absolute sovereign Lord and Master, deity and theos, God, my Lord and my God. Finally convinced by the greatest miracle of all. But what is it, one of the most wonderful things Jesus says in the Gospel of John? Good news for us, who did not witness the physical, actual, historical miracles of Jesus. Jesus says, oh, you have touched me and seen me, and now you believe. Blessed are those who do not see, who will not be able to see, and yet they believe. Genuine, saving faith, actual belief, real trust, real confidence, real faith, real belief. It's amazing. Jesus imparts a very special blessing on that occasion for people like you and I who pray God genuinely believe without seeing great miraculous signs and wonders. You see, folks, the point of the matter is the Holy Spirit of God creates and enables human beings to have true saving faith. The Holy Spirit of God working in conjunction with the work of the Son enables human beings to have real saving faith. The Holy Spirit of God with the work of the Son, with the work of the Word, by the will of the Father from eternity past creates and enables human beings to have true, saving, genuine faith and belief. And once the Spirit of God, the Word of God by the will of the Father and the work of the Son has given you the gracious gift of genuine and saving faith. When that faith is present, then a person is enabled to truly believe in the Word of Jesus when there is no miraculous sign by which they have witnessed that they can point to. Now another genuine question arises. Did these people, did the members of these crowds, did they even truly understand the signs of the miracles that they were witnessing? Probably not. It's a very good question, but probably not. Likely what they were seeing, what they were hearing, they did not understand, and it's a distinct possibility that they didn't stick around long enough to care to understand or to listen or perceive what he was really saying, what he was really doing. 
I, don't, I just don't think they cared to. Just like folks today. Here's another very frightening point. The, this is the Jewish people, the old covenant people of God, at the time of the arrival of their Messiah, who's going to inaugurate a new covenant, the greatest covenant at all. And he's standing there right in front of them. And they're not getting it. And they don't care to get it. That's because they're fallen sinful humanity too. You see, at this time in the first century A.D., I don't think that they were willing to accept the work of God in Christ on God's terms. That's the problem. They wanted a Messiah of their own making, a Messiah of their own creation, a Messiah who would serve them and do things their way, not His way, not by way of the divine plan. They're not willing to accept God's work in Christ on God the Son's terms. Again, they want a Messiah. They want God's work on their own terms. This will not do, according to the Apostle John, according to Jesus Himself. And how often do we see exactly the same thing today? Especially in America. And what fraudulently poses as Christianity in America. They want God on their own terms. They want a God on their own terms. They want Jesus on their own terms. A Jesus of their own creation. They do not want the actual factual Jesus from sacred scripture. From the greatest period of human history, the life of the Word made flesh in His first advent. 2,000 years ago. Nothing doing. Pardon the expression. We must accept, we must submit to God, to Christ, on His terms and not our own. The divine plan supersedes our own. His terms are perfect. And yes, His terms are unbelievably, astoundingly merciful, gracious, and generous. More than generous enough that what sinful humanity deserves. But sadly, the faith of many at this time focusing back upon Jesus here in the first century. Sadly, the faith of many of these folks, many, not all, it's transient, it's spurious. And the Word made flesh, Jesus Himself, read what John tells us. The Divine Son is keenly and fully aware of this. He won't accept it. He won't have it. Verse 24, But Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew... All men. First, something, note the warning contrast. This is the genuine versus the false. The genuine versus the false and the spurious. Many of them believed in his name because of the signs. In other words, they're thrill seekers, sensationalist seekers, and, and they're being intellectually or emotionally titillated some way by what Jesus is doing and saying by way of these miracles. They're not the genuine, they're the spurious. Now compare and contrast that over against he who is the genuine article, the real thing, Jesus himself. Jesus, on his part, he was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. For he knew ginosko or epigenosko. This is a word in the Greek which suggests comprehensive, total, and complete knowledge. Backwards and forwards, in and out. Dare I say transcendent knowledge, divine knowledge. He truly knows what is in the depths of the minds and hearts and souls of every individual in these fickle crowds. He knows, well, we translate it as men, it's actually anthropoi which in the Greek can mean men and women, all people. He comprehensively, totally knows what's in all men and women, all people. He, know, he has that knowledge then, he has the knowledge now. So here we are confronted again with Jesus as a divine word made flesh, possessing the attribute of omniscience, 
an incommunicable attribute that only the being of God possesses and he and he only. Omniscience, of course, means, you well know by now, he possesses all knowledge known and possibly to be known. He knew full well of the condition of sinful, selfish, fickle, faithless humanity, and he wasn't having any of it. Very interesting. He's not being all-inclusive and embracing to these crowds at this time, is he? Absolutely not. Not at all. Scary. It's sobering. It's frightening. You see, God wants quality, not necessarily quantity. Oh, how often do we forget that? We're all interested and we're all about quantity. He wants quality. He's far more interested in quality than he is quantity. 20 centuries ago and now, today. He would not further entrust himself, his mission, his message to fake, false followers. And he still doesn't and he never will. He will not. There is no fooling the divine Son of God, the Word made flesh, through whom everything came into existence. There is no duping Him. There is no deceiving the divine Son of God, the divine Word made flesh. He fully knows through and through the nature of corrupted humanity. And this is the very inconvenient and uncomfortable truth of His omniscience. He knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what's in here. He knows what's in here to the core, to the depths. And nobody's fooling him. Not one little bit. Not then, not now, not ever. His knowledge of the minds and hearts and souls of human beings, John is saying, was and is beyond profound. It is comprehensive. It is complete. And yes, we would do well to acknowledge and remember this fundamental fact. I look around me. We're speaking of spurious faith, faith which isn't genuine. You see it all over the place in America. And these people really think they have him fooled, if you care to observe. They really think they have him fooled. Obviously, they've never read these verses. Well, or they don't care to. They don't care to understand, just like the crowds 2,000 years ago. Really didn't care to understand, to really perceive. It's a wonderful truth, but it's a sobering fact that John is bringing to our attention here. As in 2,000 years ago, so now, Jesus will not entrust himself to such people. He will not entrust his world to such people. He will not entrust his kingdom to such people. He will not trust himself, his world, his kingdom, his mission, his message to those who are false and spurious to those who have not genuinely submitted themselves to Him and to His authority and to the life that He offers. Time and time again, I was reminded this week in looking over this passage of some of those frightening words in the New Testament contained in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. He's basically speaking of the same kind of person. Remember, Jesus somewhat in parabolic form speaks of the great judgment at the end of history as we know it. And he speaks of those who will come to him expecting to enter his kingdom. Those who have inadequate faith, false faith, spurious faith, just as the crowds that John is mentioning in today's passage. And they call him Lord. They pay lip service to him. 
They actually acknowledge that He is sovereign, Lord, and Master, perhaps even divine. Lord, Lord, curios, curios. One of the most lofty titles given to Jesus in the New Testament. Did we not cast out demons in your name, do battle with evil spirits in your name, and do all of these wonderful acts of, of healing or generosity or charity or what have you? And He says to them, get away from Me. I never knew you. You're not entering My kingdom. I never knew you. You never truly bowed the knee to me as Lord. You declare me to be Lord, but you never obeyed me as Lord. You never submitted to me as Lord. You are still in all for yourself. Your way. Not me. I never knew you in being your Savior, in your true Lord, in your true God, in your true King. Get away from me. You're not entering my kingdom. I never knew you. He's speaking about the same kind of person. Sober warning. Let's take it to heart. However, on the other hand, you have good news. Conversely, there's good news. I gave you the bad news. By the way, to get the true biblical gospel, you first have to get the bad news. Because you can't understand or appropriate or appreciate the good news until you get the bad news. Well, here's the good news. Now think about this by implication. Use your brains. Reason this out. If Jesus is saying, if John is saying that Jesus will not entrust himself, his world, and his kingdom to those who are false or spurious, then what does that mean by implication? On the other hand, he will entrust himself. He will entrust his mission. He will entrust his message. He will entrust his truth. He will entrust his world and his kingdom to those who do genuinely, authentically, truly believe and truly, authentically, and genuinely submit to Him and the life that He came to give us and trust themselves to Him, those who truly believe in Him. Now, besides the issue of genuine and true faith, there's another issue. It goes hand in hand. They both go together. The issue of genuine or true discipleship. They both go together. If you have true, genuine faith in Christ, then you're going to be a disciple. And if you're a true disciple of Christ, then, of course, you possess true, genuine, and authentic faith. They go, one, go together. They go hand in glove. Now, Jesus is gathering to Himself, even at this particular time. My fans wrestling the pages here. Jesus is in this time in the opening of His ministry where He is actively recruiting, as we would say, calling people, gathering people to Him, the Twelve and others. He is drawing His own to Himself by divine plan. Those who will have genuine saving faith. Those who will, by the Spirit of God, by the work of the Son, by the will of the Father from eternity past, have their spiritual eyes and ears opened. True followers, genuinely committed disciples, and they are called. The word in Greek is kaleo. Very important word in the original Greek. Uh, kaleo, uh, it, means, um, it means summoned. You are summoned by someone. You receive a summons. You receive a summons from a king, from the king of all kings, the high king of heaven, to be his true disciple, to be his follower, to receive the life that he came to win in his first advent for human beings in spiritual darkness. So the true called disciples of Jesus, they are beginning to truly understand, aren't they? They are being enabled to truly see him and hear him for who he really is and what he really came to do. They are beginning to understand His actions and so forth, genuinely for who He truly is. The divine Word made flesh, the prophesied divine Messiah. Now the disciples, of course, as opposed to the crowds, they and some others, good news, 
are beginning to arrive at genuine, authentic, saving faith. They're well on our way. And what is John saying here? Are you? Are you? We're not through with his gospel yet. We're only in chapter 2. But he's already saying, how about you? Do you believe? Are you beginning to see? Are you beginning to hear? Are you with us? Don't be part of the crowds who choose to remain in self-imposed spiritual darkness. Come along with me. And those who are kaleo, summoned by the great king to be his follower, to be his disciples. That's what John is saying. And this genuine saving faith, remember, it's a gift of God, folks. You've got a lot of false spurious gospels going on out there that in some way, shape, or form imply or insinuate that you can do something to work or win or earn your way into heaven. That is a lie. That is completely false. It is 110% and beyond a gift of God. To be called as a genuine disciple, a genuine follower of Christ, it's a gracious gift of God, a calling, a summons by divine plan. True, genuine followers, disciples of Jesus, the Word made flesh, have a correct belief in Jesus. A biblical, scriptural, correct belief in Jesus. Thereby, you will be able to come by authentic, truthful belief in Jesus, which leads to genuine believing faith. Belief in the true Jesus, the actual Jesus, not the Jesus of one's own making on one's own terms. You see, that's why Jesus would not entrust himself to these people. He knows full well what they're up to. They want a Messiah that they can command, that they can control, that's convenient for them. Isn't that true for false American Christianity? They want a Jesus that's convenient for them. That's all about them. That's all about promoting them. Making them the center of the world and the center of attention and the center of the universe and on and on and on and on. It doesn't work that way. Jesus will not entrust himself to such people. Jesus is the real article. He's the real Messiah. The actual Son of God who is God the Son. And he will not answer to, he will not bend to, he will not bow to a fickle mob of fallen, flawed humanity. Then or now. He actually came to save humanity, actually, and genuinely. He did not come in his first advent in the flesh to play religious games with self-centered humanity. He came to offer true salvation to humanity, again, which takes place by a divine plan, which takes place on God's terms, by his plan and decree. Edward Clink writes in his commentary, the assumption here is that not all belief in Jesus actually corresponds to the true belief that is absolutely required. Not all have been given the right to become children of God that John speaks of in chapter 1, verse 12. For the right to truly believe, to truly become a child of God, requires the force of God, the power of God, to such who truly believe. Such children of God are a new creation altogether, not a work of their own, not a work of this world. They are those who have received a new spiritual birth altogether from above that Jesus will describe for us in chapter 3. End quote. Verse 25, closing verse for the day. This is interesting as well. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's true 20 centuries ago, and it's just as true today in 2021. 
So John ends this temple Passover episode. This event was something of a summarizing commentary statement about Jesus' interactions with what we would call the public at large and the spiritual condition of the public at large, which isn't good. And also, well, let me make this point to you before getting to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is a good example of fallen humanity, as is that woman at the well, as are other people whom Jesus will have very important, intimate, personal conversations with. This is the truth of the prologue in action. You remember the truth of the prologue? The prologue describes Jesus, the divine word made flesh, as being the ultimate light of God, the ultimate revelation light of God to humanity. And He will come into a darkened world. This is the truth of the prologue in action. The Word made flesh has entered this dark world and is walking about and moving about the darkened spirituality of fallen humanity in this dark world. You see, John is reminding us by way of these crowds and their inadequate faith of the sorry state of the spiritual darkness of fallen humanity. Compared to Jesus, He who is the light, the divine incarnate Word, He who is light, spiritual light, and He who is the source of all light, physical or spiritual or any other kind of light. So this summary statement ending chapter 2, it's also this. Think about this between this week and the next. John's preparing you for the conversation with Nicodemus. He is concluding this Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread and what happened in that temple and the spiritual darkness of lost humanity. And he's also preparing you for a very important conversation that Jesus will have with someone who will come from those crowds. So it's a summary and a preparation. Let me bring this to your attention. Remember, when this was first written, no chapters, no verses. You're probably supposed to read the very end of chapter 22 and go immediately in, or ch end of chapter 2 and go immediately into chapter 3. Let me explain. Um, what, what he says here in verse 23 to 25 is something of a preparation for Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. It becomes evident when you notice the very last verse of chapter 2 and you read it together with the very first verse of chapter 3, when they're consciously read together. So let's do that as follows. You have this. He himself, Jesus, he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. You see what John is doing there? Let me paraphrase it for you. There was this man of inadequate belief a member of the crowds of inadequate belief at this time. He was a man of the religious elite. His name was Nicodemus. You see what Jesus is doing? Or what John is doing? Jesus is going to deal with this man of darkened spirituality from the crowds of darkened spirituality. He's going to deal with them truly to make absolutely certain that we don't miss the depths of spiritual darkness. The Apostle John is about to introduce us to a person who exemplifies this problem, who exemplifies the spiritual problem, inadequate faith problem that Jesus knows concerning humanity. And he is a member of the religious elite at that. His name is Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus, in spite of his social and religious standing, is a man of inadequate belief. He is a spiritually blind man, and he is about to encounter the light, the ultimate light, the light of he who is the light, the ultimate bearer of light, he who is the source of light. Nicodemus is about to come out of that crowd and encounter the merciful, patient, gracious God in the flesh. Nicodemus will find himself involved in one of history's most critical, most oft-quoted, and most important conversations. And to that we will turn next week. In the meanwhile, these things have been written so that you may believe, genuinely believe, truly believe, authentically believe that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the divine Word made flesh, the ultimate revelation of God to humanity, and thereby believing, truly, authentically, genuinely believing in His name, you may have life, eternal life, in His name. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for the Gospel of John, every single solitary word of it, the life-giving, truth-bearing Gospel. Father God, by the power of Your Spirit, by the power of Your recorded, inspired, and preserved Word, let these words sit wisely and well in the hearts and minds of all who hear them, here and abroad. Send the work of your word, send the work of your spirit to open the minds and hearts of all who hear this message, this proclamation of this gospel, that they may receive in their souls the work of the Son, the divine word made flesh, that they may truly and genuinely believe in the word made flesh and have eternal life. And thank you for bringing us once again to this table as a church. O oh, Father God, impress upon us in these next minutes and moments what this table means. The fully accomplished work of the Word made flesh by divine plan. Enabling us to have true belief, authentic faith and belief, true and authentic life in You. And that we may find ourselves seated at Messiah's table in the future. The table of the great bridegroom, the hero of the wedding at Cana to enjoy the table, the feast, the family reunion, the wedding celebration that knows no end. In Jesus' holy name, that he may be glorified in all of our lives and all of our efforts here. In Jesus' name, amen. To